Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The pandemic caused by the new coronavirus has upended American life as we knew it. The government has ordered some businesses closed. Others face frightening new challenges. And people in many cities find their freedoms curtailed with changes by the week and sometimes the day. Through it all, the work of the legal profession continues. And joining us today to talk about the legal ramifications of all these issues is a very fine panel. First, we're joined today by Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University, as well as an attorney. Mark, welcome to the show. Good day to hear your voice, Sarah. Yours as well. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor, and she's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Nicole, welcome. Good afternoon. And our final guest today is Marianne Sade. She's an attorney who specializes in employment issues at Sade Harper Westoff. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So my lawyer friends have made it very clear that they are considered essential workers right now. Uh, that relieves them from, from some of the changes going on with businesses. But I'm still kind of interested in how coronavirus has upended the legal profession. And it seems like one of the biggest examples is the court system. Um, for criminal defendants, what happens? You should be able to get a speedy trial. What happens if the government cancels jury trials? Nicole, thoughts on how this is working out so far? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting issue. And so the United States Constitution obviously grants uh, criminal defendants the right to a speedy trial, and then each state has sort of statutory rights to a speedy trial on top of that. Missouri's statutory right to a speedy trial just says that it has to be within a reasonable time mm. and generally considers that to be around 180 days. So at least we're, you know, we're, you know, not butting up against that time, you know, right now. But, you know, the wheels of justice don't go quickly. And so when you're talking about a court that was already sort of overburdened um, in in sort of all of the areas surrounding St. Louis um, and federal courts, um, you know, that 180 days might be a difficult time to fulfill. But again, even the Constitution says there are factors to look at when it goes beyond their reasonable time, which are reason for the delay, the length of a delay, whether there was a prejudice to um, the defendant. Um, and it just seems like we're looking at public health versus public safety here, and courts are going to have to weigh that. Um, on a case-by-case basis when people are looking at speedy trial issues. And it's not 100% clear what's going to happen here. Mark Smith, do you think this 180-day period will be something that courts will be willing to increase if this pandemic continues to keep things shut down? You know, I think they they might because reasonable leaves a lot of wiggle room and reasonable given the particular situations might be beyond that. Having said that, I would not be surprised, too, if we see courts, and, and they're not going to be unlimited uh, ability to make changes, but, you know, adopting some of the practices we've seen occur already in private workplaces, you know, maybe we have uh, more trials where um, you have, you know, people appearing remotely. I mean, you still have to, you know, be able to face your accuser and stuff, but there may be some workarounds beyond what a, a normal uh, you know, what we think of as a normal trial, where you go into a courtroom where you have a bunch of bodies in the jury box, uh, things like that. Marianne, what kind of impact do you think this will have on civil litigation? Well, I think 
as a practical matter, civil litigation is pretty much closed down at this point. Um, most courts have entered orders saying that the only people who can even enter our courthouse are people who are associated with some kind of uh, criminal proceeding. And even then, I know courts that are holding these proceedings uh, by video conferencing. So essentially, the civil jury trial system is pretty much on hold. I heard that in St. Clair County, they issued an order yesterday on the Illinois side that there won't be any civil trials for 60 days now. So Hmm. it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but I don't think there are going to be any civil trials in the foreseeable future. Hmm. Now, at the same time, on the criminal front, there's a lot of people um, already locked up, some awaiting their day in trial, some serving sentences. The ACLU has asked the Missouri Department of Corrections to release anyone who's at high risk of severe illness or death from COVID-19. Do you think there's any way to do that, uh, Mark, that wouldn't endanger the public? Well, I mean, I think... They're not suggesting you release everyone. They're suggesting this is kind of like in the um, the issue with the bail uh, mm-hmm. stuff, too. It's it's more um, releasing people who are not considered a risk. So I think that would be, you know, you would you would want to balance uh, safety to um, the general public. So not releasing somebody who's accused of murder and where there's uh, there might present a danger to the uh, the community versus people who are at high risk for this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, just one other thing I wanted to say about the courts. I don't know if your listeners know this, but Supreme Court is no longer <clears throat> hearing cases right now. And I think, hmm. I thought I read somewhere that the last time they had done that was during the Spanish flu outbreak. So hmm. there's some historic precedent <laughs> here, although very yeah, we, long but, ago. But we, yeah, but a uh, hundred years uh, before. So it was very, very kind of you know, like like the rest of our lives, we're in uncharted waters here, and I think people are trying to figure out what to do, and you may see some kind of novel solutions coming up um, and then being adopted by other, uh, other courts um, mm-hmm. and other jurisdictions. Thinking about going back to these cases of, of COVID-19 and within jails and within prisons, um, the Missouri Department of Corrections reported its first case of COVID-19 earlier this week. Nicole, should we be worried that this is going to be an area where this is going to spread like wildfire and, and take over? Yeah, I think absolutely any institutional setting. I mean, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I think any institutional setting um, where people are in close quarters, uh, you know, I think it's going to spread like wildfire. Absolutely. And again, um, like I said before, it's a public health versus public safety issue. Yeah. And um, the uh, laws of our country actually, uh, in times of pandemics, give our government a lot of leeway in making decisions in these desperate times. And those decisions are going to have to be made. Um, I know for a fact that, um, at least anecdotally, the prosecutors in our area are making decisions, you know, about charging people, um, you know, in a much different way than they would in normal times. They're, you know, they're not going to lock people up at this time who, Hmm. you know, have committed minor offenses. Um, Certainly bail is being considered 
where there's a factor, they're considering that as a factor of the public health issue. Um, and again, you know, so we're already considering that people are already considering that in terms of pretrial detention. But now we're talking about people who already have sentences who are in the Missouri Department of Corrections, that they're serving out time that they've already been ordered to serve. So um, I think if this goes on much longer, certainly that's going to have to be considered. Hmm. It's going to be so interesting to see how some of this stuff plays out and and such complicated issues. Um, We need to take a quick break here, but I do want to say when we come back, we're going to specifically talk about some employment issues related to the new coronavirus. And Marianne Sade really is one of the foremost experts locally in this field. So I want to encourage you, if you have a question or comment for our panel as it relates to that subject, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air. And and when we come back, we'll see if we can get to some of those questions. Um, Our legal roundtable today is Mark Smith of Washington University, Marianne Sade of Sade Harper Westhoff, and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. We'll take that quick break now, and we'll keep this conversation going when we return. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Our legal roundtable is digging into all the news related to the coronavirus and and maybe even more. And today, we're joined by Mark Smith of Washington University, Marianne Sade of Sade Harper Westhoff, and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. And it feels like this COVID-19 pandemic um, it presents a whole host of new issues for employers to deal with. Marianne, something that we've been wondering here is, are employers responsible for mitigating coronavirus risk for their employees? And, and if so, to what extent? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, all our health and safety regulations um, come from either the federal or the state government. So one of the things that I've been reading is that OSHA is in the process of adopting some new regulations, at least for healthcare workers, that deal with health and safety issues. But I know of no regulation at this point, either at the federal or state level, that would require employers to um, take these mitigating measures. Now, most Hmm. employers are going to want to do that. I mean, I was interested to see that some of the grocery chains are putting up plexiglass panels between uh, customers and workers. Um, Just one example of the kinds of things they're doing to try to protect both their customers and their employees. But um, this is a brand new area. And up until this point, other than for healthcare workers, I have not seen anything that indicates that OSHA is in the process of issuing new regulations. Hmm. You'd think they'd want to be on top of this, but there's also a lot going on in the world. Thinking about those grocery store workers, um, a business that is truly essential has to stay open. Can they require workers to come in or, or risk termination? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, Congress passed a new bill um, about six, seven days ago that gives employees the right to take leave if they're unable to work because they have to care for a child whose school or daycare provider is closed. Um, It's kind of on the uh, 
same model as the FMLA, but you know, a lot of employees are not covered by that, even that new law, hmm. so that you've got an employer who uh, has fewer, more than 500 employees. That new, new bill does not even apply to them. There's a real... Yeah, Marianne, can I, can I cut in here? I've just, um, I, I was kind of horrified to hear that this doesn't apply to people with more than 500 workers. Is there some reason, legally, that they would get exempted from this? Well, you know, I mean, it's this fiction that exists um, that people at big corporations have lots of good benefits and protections, which of course we know is not true. Hmm. Um, You know, if you work at McDonald's, you have absolutely no opportunity to get paid sick leave, for instance. I mean, it's just a fiction, but it's a fiction that some members of Congress, you know, are operating on. Interesting. So the idea is, oh, these corporations will already give good benefits. We only have to worry about the smaller companies? Yeah, that was precisely the idea. And that was the compromise that was made. Wow. Mark Smith, thoughts on that? Yep. Well, I, I was going to actually, what Mary Ann was saying, while I agree completely with what she said, that OSHA hasn't done all this stuff yet, they're, I think they're working on it. There is something called the General Duty Clause. It's Section 5A1 of, of the Occupational um, Safety Act. Requires an employee to protect its employees against, quote, a recognized hazards to safety or health. And so they could argue that, you know, this virus is a, a rec- has become a recognized hazard. I mean, it's, it's not established, but I think there were, and CDC has issued guidance to employers. Um, I think um, who else? There was somebody else that had issued another federal agency, maybe the Department of Labor, that had issued some stuff. So, I think um, I think there there could be some protection for employees. Also, if if you know an employer says to an employee, you have to come into work, and the employee is talking to, particularly if they're talking to other employees and saying, well, we don't think it's safe, we don't want to come in, that could. could could be construed as protected activity, which is a kind of defined term, hmm. um, and and maybe afford some protection to employees. I also think, and I'd, I'd be interested in Marianne's opinion of this and Nicole's as well. Um, you know, if if I'm a, a worker, um, a cashier, and I get virus, and I can show that it most likely came from work, you know, I think there's a good, I would believe that that would be workers' comp injury, and that I would be um, protected under the workers' comp um, disability benefits, you know, uh, section. But Marianne, what, um, what, do you think that's possible, yeah. that that could be covered by workmen's comp? Well, the problem is that workers' comp doesn't cover every illness or injury. Right. It, it covers you know, disability, as Mark says. And so, you know, if you're sick for a while, but you're not super duper sick, then, you know, there's a serious question of whether workers' comp would apply. The other thing that you've got going on here is just a kind of, I guess I would call it some leverage on both sides. On the one hand, these employers that are providing essential services absolutely need these workers right now. On the other side, you know, low-paid workers need opportunities to work. So, you know, so everybody's got some bargaining power. Um, And so, in a sense, it's a little different than it usually is where, you know, if you say to your boss, gee, I I don't want to take this risk, what are you going to do to protect me? 
the boss might ordinarily say, the heck with you, but in this case, they need those employees. Those employees mm-hmm. are critical uh, to dealing with the uh, provision of these services that are so important at this point. Nicole, uh, do you think at this point employees have some leverage here and they could maybe force their employer to to provide safety for them if they're not already doing that? Yeah, I think this is really ripe for some really clever employee arguments down the line because um, as um, as uh, Mark said, the OSHA says that they must provide a workplace free from hazards. OSHA also says that they have to provide personal protective equipment, what we've seen that probably on, people have seen on Facebook or other social media called PPE, hmm. which, um, you know, that's been the hot button issue in these healthcare with these healthcare workers, uh, that there hasn't been enough PPE provided. Um, but that's going to be the same, I think, with regard to um, other um, environments such as grocery stores and places like that, that they have to provide a workplace free from hazards. And then you combine that with your rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and if someone has an underlying condition that could be exacerbated by this virus, they could seek reasonable accommodations to not get that virus. It just, there are potential for some creative arguments there, and I don't think that they are automatically foreclosed. So I do think employers have reason to be concerned about this legal area, even though it is a little bit murky. Interesting. One of the things I wanted to make sure that we were able to talk about today is the question of HIPAA. This has been um, such a discussion. Uh, the city of St. Louis hasn't released much information about people with coronavirus, and, and particularly in cases where there have been some deaths. Most of what we know is from family members or people voluntarily sharing their experience, and journalists have really pushed back on that. They say the city should be able to share information, such as whether the deceased had a pre-existing condition. The city says it's hands are tied by HIPAA. Uh, Marianne Sade, any thoughts on, on who's right in this dispute? Well, I mean, HIPAA provides protection for um, actual identification of who we're talking about by name and by information that would um, make it clear who the person is. So I, I don't really buy the city's argument on this one. Um, I think the city has a lot of to talk about the kinds of people who are uh, coming down with the virus, the kinds of people who've died without disclosing protected uh, and Marianne, I think we're kind of losing you there, but uh, I think Marianne was able to make that point. Um, yeah. Mark, would you so, agree? Uh, no, I, I kind of see things. I'm a little more sympathetic to the city on this one. Hmm. I mean, um, the, you know, HIPAA gives a lot of rights to the patient or the um, or the um, or the patient's representatives, and, and they specifically say disclosures to the media or others not involved in the care of the patient. You know, it's limited, um, and so I just think they can do things. You know, they can reach out to um, talk to people who maybe were in contact with this person, but to do a general release to the media. Um, and and I understand. Um, well, we as the, the the media wants to know how old was this person? Did they have health problems? And and I as an individual may want to know that. But but really, am I going to change my behavior because of it? I mean, it's it's different mm-hmm. than if 
I was in this store with this person, and um, you know, and and they, uh, you know, I spent half an hour with them. Well, then I know probably I, maybe I need to get tested or, or go see my consult with my physician or something. Um, I think, you know, HIPAA is there to protect the patients. The patient or their representative can always give somebody else permission to talk about stuff. And I think people are just saying, I'm going to be very careful um, until I get that permission to do that. Also, I, I would note, you know, HIPAA is a, a very complicated area of the law. Um, and so, you know, you have people at, in hospitals dealing with this all the time and, and lot, teams of lawyers trying to decide what we can and can't do. So, you know, if I were the mayor, I'd probably be being very careful about what I did, too. So, so um, that's a, that's one clear vote for caution. And, and yeah. I think Marianne was more having a vote saying, no, yeah, they should give more info. Right. Nicole, well, can, Nicole decided. Yeah, Nicole, can you break the tie here? What do you think the city um, should do? I'm not a HIPAA expert, but here's my understanding. I mean, I think there's a, a clear distinction between data, which is collecting information, you know, on a scale to release the pu- to the public without any identifying information, and then information about a specific patient. I mean, I think HIPAA clearly states you can't release information about a specific patient or information that allows the public to figure out who that specific patient is. I think that that's where the danger lies. But I think if you're trying to say, hey, the data is that these 10 people have died and they had underlying conditions and here's what they were, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a problem. So I think, like I said, the clear distinction is between the data without identifying information and this specifically identifying information. Okay. So there's our tie-breaking vote. It's still somewhat of a really complicated area of the law, but maybe the city could open up a little bit. Uh, We just have one minute left here. Marianne, thoughts on whether we're going to see a big influx of lawsuits over coronavirus-related issues in, say, six months to a year? Boy, that's a hard one to predict. Um, You know, I I just think that we're in an area where the question of whether protection is available for a variety of kinds of uh, conduct is just really, you know, it's really, it's it's all developing, right, as we sit Mm -hmm. here talking about it. So I would say I hope not, because Lord knows we're in a terrible crisis here. And you hate to see that result in second-guessing of people and institutions trying to make good decisions. On the other hand, you know, lawsuits get filed. (laughs) And that is, uh, boy, that is always the case. Pandemic or not, lawyers are going to lawyer. So, Mary Ann Sade of Sade Harper Westoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. And Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, thank you for for, um, joining us. Thank you. And Mark Smith of Washington University, thank you so much as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.